The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. And so every decision that we make is, okay, is that better for everyone or is it just better for me? And that better for me is not one option that we often choose. We look for the win on the bigger scale. And I have been very lucky that I found a lot of people that follow me there or that drive me there, that I can learn from that are even in some ways more hardcore. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 2, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I'm positive you're in the right place as this is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Nate Story, the Chief Science Officer at Plenty. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend you go back and check it out. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Plinky. He's the founder of Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series has been kind enough to be a sponsor partner for us this season, and we couldn't be happier to be working with them and excited to tell Mark's story today. This would probably be a good time to formally thank Series for being a sponsor of this episode. Series combines smart greenhouse design with customized climate control technology to build sustainable grow environments for year-round production. They work with their customers and clients every step of the way from helping to secure funding to providing growing data. Whether you're a commercial entrepreneur, an educator, or someone looking for a rewarding hobby, visit SeriesGreenhouseSolutions.com. That's C-E-R-E-S GreenhouseSolutions.com to get started on your greenhouse goals. In this conversation, we discover the source of Mark's natural curiosity and what it was like growing up in a family of engineers and the inspiration to launch Series Greenhouse Solutions. Mark reflects on his early career, including his time at Synergistic Building Technologies and the challenges he had to overcome as founder of Series. He shares what it means to design and reinvent greenhouses, and we hear his unique perspective about food deserts and the state of our food today. Lastly, we find out what excites Mark most about the future of ag tech, and I did get him to share his first invention as well. Really love Mark's energy and enthusiasm, and I know you will too. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read out yours next on the show. Okay, let's get into this conversation with Mark. So Mark Klinke, 
founder and chief operating officer of Series Greenhouse Solutions. Thank you for joining us, Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. I really am excited. This is this is fun. I just am all giddy about this. We'll have fun with this. Yeah, that's a good feeling. Are, do you do a lot of interviews? Nope. No. <laughs> I give okay. a lot of presentations, often okay. and almost exclusively about technical issues. And I've mm. given presentations to a thousand people in Australia and Venice and all those kind of places. But it's, you know, the exciting about some technical invention or another, but never really about yeah. the history of the company or something that has never yeah, happened. Yeah. Do you remember the first presentation you ever gave? Oh, my professor at um, UNC, Chapel Hill. You know, I just came from Germany. I'd got my master's there and then came here for the PhD. And he said, Mark, the most important thing you ever learn is how to present. And I was like, I thought we're learning things about technical issues. And I said, no, 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 no. You got a PhD. You're going to lead something. You need to present. And I was like, okay. And then he started, okay, so here's myself and my research assistants and now go ahead and present something about your work and I was just mortified this was horrible but it was a great training and I'm so happy he did it so interesting that you would have a professor that would be thinking that far ahead and knew that if you could have the best idea in the world and this is probably something you've learned over the years but if you can't articulate it and communicate it to an audience then you know, it's almost like you're halfway there because they say when you learn something, that's the first step. And then when your ability to teach that to someone else, that's when you really have demonstrated that you have a grasp of the topic. So that's something I think about as well. And so I'm sure you owe him an, an immense amount of gratitude for, yeah. <laughs> for pushing you out of your comfort zone. You know, I'm kind of an extreme extrovert. So speaking to people is not something that's really hard. Maybe I speak yeah. too much, so you're going to have to calm me down. But it's, <laughs> I want to communicate, which is a nice thing that, you know, I have tons of ideas. I get people around me that have tons of ideas and yeah. talk about them and think about what is the most exciting one to pick. It's just like a playground, right? Just like, this is fun if we just had unlimited yeah. amount of money. But of course, that's not really happening either. Yeah. But, you know, we're doing okay. As a child, were you always coming up with ideas? Uh, yeah, I think my dad taught me that to question, question, question everything. He was, I'm a fifth generation engineer, but mm. three generations of chemical engineers. It looked like my daughter is going to go into that direction too. And it was always every aspect of everything. He always tried to say, hey, why does the water boil at this temperature? And how does that change? And so this was always questions that he asked and that I'm asking my kids. And so just need to keep your eyes open without that and questioning, why, why is this happening? Why is the snow melting of buildings in certain ways? I just saw it last night. There was the snow behind my fence. Uh, I have a little you know, mm -hmm. pole fence and snow in certain areas melted and others it doesn't. And it's very relevant to greenhouses because if you have a, now I'm getting technical, but you have a east to west obstruction in a greenhouse, for example, everything in that shade in this time of the year stays in the shade all day long. And so this actually is a very relevant to greenhouse design, but it's great to take photos. I took a photo and 
sending it to the company we to say guys remember keep Perlins really small <laughs> so you know it's it's fun it's like everything you do you can just nerd out yeah yes yeah, so i was i'm always curious where the impetus for curiosity comes from and it sounds like it was something that was cultivated in your household when you were young and it's something that you've carried through to your kids when your kids question you on things do you are you open minded about some of the questions that may seem <laughs> may seem silly or do you encourage them to continue to be curious oh that's an easy one to answer there is never a bad question and i will always always teach them and ask them was like why is this that way why you know what does the snow feel like why is the snow harder than it is we like to go skiing or we were just windsurfing uh, yeah and so it's like how do you need to hold the sail to make that go faster those questions are always there anywhere i go because i think about them and so it's easy for me to communicate that and it is i do want to say a, a part that that even more inspired me to do this is was another professor in germany during my masters and we kind of all made fun of him because he wasn't really very researchy you know he didn't do formulas but he came mm. from industry was a big wig at basf which was one of the biggest mm. german companies and he my university hired him and he taught a class that was changed my life because he taught us to look at any process and look for the fundamentals of that process and his he loved wine and so he said so how is wine made right and so in the old days you had people standing in a in a tub and they were walking in the tub and he said so they squished the grapes he said how exactly did they squish the grapes what is the process to get the most juice oh so it's a sheer force instead of just pressure and then the next question as well what kind of a machine can can we come up with that can actually mimic that and make that more efficient and so he went through the whole process of how you invent new processes and that was endlessly fascinating i i could just write and write and write <laughs> every question every exam it was just that was mind boggling and i wish i had the time at this point to teach that at a high school because mm. it is empowering it allows you to look at the world and say the world is waiting for you to change the world that's what i tell kids right you have the power and all you need to do is pay attention and ask yourself why is that happening right yeah. lots of kids play soccer a ball flies straight most of the time and it rotates but if it's not then it goes up and down really quickly why is that happening right and so mm. it is so good to look at it that way and then provide the power to tell people you can change it which gets us to this greenhouse company right it's kind of the same yeah. thing it's i had the dream of my life was always to say at some point i want to live in a net zero energy house mm. and in those days i only thought about net zero net zero as something that is energy related and i thought okay that's we need to make sure we don't use more fossil fuels this that and the other and so here we are taking an old house from 1961 which is the year i was born it's like okay let's make it energy efficient right and make it and it turned out with the engineering we did it actually turned out to be net positive so we're making more energy than we're using in this process somebody said hey mark so you have a net zero energy house and you have a plug in car where exactly does your food come from <laughs> and i was like the grocery store which yeah. i knew was not the right answer 
But it is that moment that I thought, oh my God, I haven't really looked at this the right way. And so he said, hey, I have its grant, USDA, they give us money for $100,000 to build a new greenhouse. What do you think about greenhouses? Like, well, greenhouses are kind of silly. People have not, none of these things that we talked about in this house, right, that are standard in energy efficiency are used. They're just glass boxes. That doesn't really make sense. It makes sense in Holland and, you know, Belgium and, and England where the weather was relatively calm. And it was great to have greenhouses that way because not too hot, not too cold. It's all good. Here, especially in the U.S., but in many other places, and even more so as you go further north, you know, Canada and First Nations, the weather can be in Arizona really hot, in Florida really hot and muggy, and in our area, Colorado, very hot in the summer, very cold in the winter. A glass house is just not the answer. Mm -hmm. It isn't because it takes a huge amount of energy to make it happen, right? So what we did is we just looked at this, we did a life cycle analysis, which I think is a great tool to look at the positive impact that you make and looked at the structures that we build. And we found out that huh, if we use more energy efficient materials, they take a little bit more work or CO2 to make. But after only three months in operation, you are at the break even point compared to a standard greenhouse. Okay. That means after three months, you are actually doing good in the world, but you do good from the yeah. beginning. But I'm, I'm just saying the greenhouse is not built for three months operation. It's built for a long time. And the, that really makes a difference. And so that's the motivation to say, hey, we can actually change the way that food is grown. And that came to this issue. Okay, so how do we get food locally and how we can get better food made. And the questions start piling, up, piling on. At the beginning, I thought, yeah, how difficult can it be? A little engineering question. We do this wall, that wall, you know, whatever. A year, I should know everything. I'm wondering just from a timeline perspective, because prior to series, you had, had started synergistic building technologies. Was that the first time that you were the, the creator and the founder of the company? Because previous to that, you had held positions in other companies? Yeah, so this is my third career. Okay. And so, and Synergistic Building Technologies was really owned by a friend of mine who, that's the person who came to me and said, Mark, you know, I have money for this, for this greenhouse. Do you want to build it? And so he and I built it. And he, Larry Kinney is his name. He got me into this. He was at the time 70 and we built a big greenhouse all by ourselves, you know, schlepping two by eight all over the place. It took a whole summer in 100 degree heat and he was working every day full time. It was crazy. But that thing worked and we wrote tons of papers and all of it. And that got me started. But in synergistics, building technologies, it became clear that Larry at his stage in his life wanted to be an academic. He was always an academic and he wanted to just go to international conferences and actually give presentations and share the knowledge that he had, which was fine. But I had kids and a wife and I needed to make some money. And so we decided that I want to go the commercial route and actually build structures. That's how I started series together with my partner at the time, Lindsay Schiller. And so together we started series because we wanted to not just provide knowledge, but actually affect people. And 
just started with little tiny greenhouses. Eight by tens was my first one I built for a neighbor and then 10 by 12s. And then they became bigger and bigger. And then the cannabis world started. And we have been trying to get into big greenhouses because we knew our technology would work. But most of the farmers were very conservative in the sense that, oh, we have been doing it this way for many, many years. You know, if you want to show me something new, build it for me for free and then we'll try it. And I was like, well, don't, yeah. don't have that kind of money. Yeah. And so the cannabis people came and they said, hey, I'm, I want to, you know, here is an energy calculation. They know the energy models. They looked at it and they said, yeah, that makes sense. Of course, we're going to do this. And that's how we got into the commercial realm, which then was driven first by cannabis in Colorado, but ultimately then moved into the vegetable world, which is what I really care about. I, I want to make better food. A couple of questions that come out from there. What were some of the challenges as you started building series, either from a change in management style, because you had you were partnering with someone previously, and this is really, is, would you consider that series is the first time that the buck stops with you, or you, know, you have to be the one making all the key decisions, and then figuring out how to build a team that can support you and help you fulfill your vision? Yeah, that's a good question. So I want to I've always started businesses, even my first job, which was at W.L. Gore. Um, I, I made filters for catalytic filters for power plants. And I got there. They said, here's a computer, find a project to work on and do something. We have money mm -hmm. to spend. We need to do something. So I gathered around. I got the, the idea. I presented it. I got money and we started. And then I'm not a business person. I'm so much a technical guy. I think by now that's clear. Mm -hmm. I do not do money well in the sense that I, I don't really care how much money we make or not make it in the sense that I'm all into sustainability and trying to, to have a long lasting impact. And we can get into that in a minute. But mm -hmm. so at the beginning, yes, it was just me and my money to start the company. And that was not, that was cheap, relatively just an engineering office. We have no capital expenses beside a few tools to build the first ones, right? After a while, it became apparent I needed to get a CEO, somebody who actually, whose job it is to make sure that we have money over left over at the end of the year. And so I was lucky to have a friend living three, days, three houses down. His wife started working for me. She was one of the very first employees at the time she mowed my lawn because she wanted to get rid of her kids and i said hey by the way can you do my books she said i've never done that but i can learn and so you know at some point he came involved and then it became a business before that it was a passionate hobby mm. right and i had a vision i knew where i wanted to go which is back to this motivation of i love my kids i was born to be a dad i love kids period and yeah. my wife is a medical doctor she works in the world of hospice care so she sees death a lot she loves that job for me it was the possibility to be with my kids to actually do the work at any and all times i've been at every single soccer practice and i've been at every single mm. school event and science fair and all of it and then i work till late to get everything done and my motivation is to leave the world a better place for them right that's the only thing that I care about. I wanted to be leaving better for them. That, and so every decision that we make is, okay, is that better for everyone or is it just better for me? And that mm. better for me is not one option that we often 
choose. We look for the, the win on the bigger scale. And yeah. I have been very lucky that I found a lot of people that follow me there or that drive me there that I can learn from that are even in some ways more hardcore because they really believe in, in this mission. And yeah. yes, you need to make money to pay everybody. Of course we do. I'm not saying we're doing this for free, but it's not making money is not, is never been. And I don't think it will ever be the prime directive. It has to be, can we make a difference? And Chris Ulig is your CEO, correct? That's correct. And how has having bringing Chris on board helped you? Well, has it freed up some mind space oh. for you and, and helped you? <laughs> you hear me breathing deeply. Oh, your, your reaction to yes. it all. <laughs> I mean, oh, not to have to look at spreadsheets with, yeah, what's the forecast and how do we do this, that, and the other. It's just so <laughs> nice. I just get the summary and I'm good. Yeah. And I love looking at spreadsheets, don't get me wrong, but if they are about production numbers or about light levels or about the energy that we're using, I look at it all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a different skill set that people like him have, and I'm glad to, mm -hmm. so glad to have him. But yeah. the relevant thing is really that the person that I need to work together with needs to be somebody needs, that is knowledgeable, fair, and trustworthy. If you if I wouldn't trust him completely, it would be really hard. And yeah. luckily, in each of those businesses I started, not necessarily you know myself, as I said at Gore, that filter I had a partner that became the CEO, right? For or the business leader, and he was similar than than Chris. It's just the same relationship. It is beautiful to have people that you can form a bond with that share your vision. And I don't think that he necessarily shares quite the same passion on the sustainability side. Um, he does, but not quite the same, which he doesn't mm -hmm. have to think a part of it is he cares deeply about how we treat people and especially keeps me honest in making sure that the promises I make will actually be kept, yeah. right? And just like, okay, remember you said that? Let's also <laughs> do that. <laughs> It sounds like you complement each other well. Yeah, I mean, I, that's my feeling, but I think you should all yeah. ask the 30-something people that work for us right now. <laughs> I think we're about to hire three new, new ones in the next week. So That's good. And I think what's interesting is when people come on board, they've no doubt done their homework on the company and they believe in the mission or else they wouldn't be you know, applying to work with a company like yours. How important is that everyone that, is on the team believes in, and maybe at different levels, but that they're all passionate. And you, you talked about this idea of leaving a long, long lasting impact as well. How important is, is that, that everyone's moving forward on the same mission? We have tried different things and we have put our name out, you know, and said, Hey, we're looking for these and these people. We haven't particularly had so much success hiring people from the outside. It's it, hmm. that we were looking for. And I don't exactly mm -hmm. know why. I mean, at Gore, again, I was part of an interview team and we I was interviewing all the PhDs that came and, and or some at least. And so I knew all the questions and I thought I figured it out, but somehow we just, we didn't do so well. Most people that are working with us are passionate about what we're doing. Most people started by being yeah. volunteers. 
because we didn't really have a job. And we said, well, you can volunteer for a month or two, and then we'll see how you're working and when you can see where you fit in, and then we'll find something. And those people are the ones that we have had the most fun. And I did one that we're just about hiring a project manager. He came out of nowhere and just wrote to us and said, hey, I, you know, you, do you have any job openings? And we're it's like, well, what do you do? And all of a sudden, here we are. I think we're about, by the time that this airs, certainly he will be working for us. And that has worked yeah. really well because those people look for us. And luckily, we have enough people always had enough people that look for it. It's not a problem of finding people, even in the times when we had a lot of people working. Yeah. I want to talk about how you explain to someone who is not as well-versed in the intricacies and the differences between greenhouse design, because series is touted as an alternative design. And I think some of the copy on the website says some, something to the effect of reinventing greenhouses. And so when you explain to people who have this vision maybe an outdated one of what, what a greenhouse is, this, this glass box and <laughs> not a lot going on, not a lot of science behind it. How do you explain how series is different? There's a few aspects. I think the key of that in a greenhouse is light and temperature. The, the, you need to control both of those. And you need to have the right amount of light, especially in the winter, if you want to grow all season, because there's just not enough naturally from the sun. And you need to have the right temperatures. Traditional greenhouses, because of the way they're built, they're often built north to south. The sun comes in from the morning, from the east, comes in through the roof at the daytime and then the afternoon from the west. And so that plant inside the greenhouse gets the same amount of light it would normally get outside, minus the absorption of whatever the, the hull is absorbing, right? Which is 20, 30% somewhere in that range. And so that's fine in the summer. And the difficulty in the winter is that there's just not enough light there. And so the plants will kind of light starve and need to be helped with some artificial lights. The disadvantage of building it that way is that you can really not insulate any part of this building because the insulation of the glazing material, the, the material that you actually have the light come through, is so poor that you can't actually insulate it. Therefore, it's enormously takes an enormous amount of energy. On top of that, those mm -hmm. buildings are generally relatively leaky there because they need to be cheap. Farmers don't want to spend a lot of money. So they, they make these leaky greenhouses where the cold air comes in and just any heat that you're getting just goes out and then you're getting it to be freezing. And then you need to put huge amounts of propane or gas into it to heat it. That's not very efficient. So we basically turn the building from east to west and make it a solar collector. And so you're still having the sun coming through the roof at any of those times as we had morning, midday, afternoon. But the north wall now is completely insulated. And so you have the insulation, which gives you so much more energy efficiency, but also the light that hits that north wall is reflected back to the plants. And so the plant in the greenhouse, especially in northern climates, actually has more light in the winter inside than it would have outside. So you, all that extra light mm. you don't need to add. And so that's the light aspect. The other thing that conventional greenhouses have is they actually, when it gets hot, you put the vents on and then all the heat goes out in the yeah. daytime. Every day, it doesn't matter. It could be minus 10 degrees. The sun is shining. 
inside the greenhouse, you can have 100 degrees and more, right? That's how effective greenhouses are. But the problem is in a normal greenhouse, you would just put the vent on and you need to get rid of that heat. At night, on the other hand, at minus 10 degrees, you need that heat, right? And it's like, why did I just throw this away during the daytime? That makes no sense. <laughs> so you need to, yeah. the trick is what methods can I use to harness that energy that I have extra in the day to do use at night? And there's a variety of technologies we use. One of them is the GAT system. Okay, that's a very ground-to-air heat transfer system. It's actually came to me, at least, from a, a Chinese acupuncturist who said, oh, we have been doing this for 2,000 years in China. And I was like, well, <laughs> you didn't have fans 2,000 years ago, but I'm sure, you know. Anyway, the idea of that helped to create safe, to save the energy inside the building for it's already there. You just need to save it, right? And once it yeah. is saved yeah. in the ground, in this case, you can cool the air in the daytime. And at nighttime, you take that heat out and heat your greenhouse. All that heat, you don't need to add with, with natural, you know, fossil fuels, etc. Yeah. And so how do you think about the designs? Because I, I know that all different sizes of, of greenhouses that series offers. And I'm wondering, when you think about the different applications and where people are you know what when you think about who is a good fit for a series greenhouse because you do have the high yield ones you have the modular ones backyard kits there's there's a whole range of offerings that you have and so how do you think about when you're creating them do you wait for the demand or, or are you or do you see that there's an opportunity for these different flavors of greenhouse so the we're an engineering office in essence engineering and architectural office, we, yeah. we're not actually producing the steel itself. We have suppliers mm -hmm. that does that do that for us. But the beauty of this is yeah. we are quite flexible to change according to customer demand. This is a vertical farming podcast. So we're talking about vertical farming. Yeah. The schools yeah. and education is, is a wonderful market and we love we love working with schools. They also have often an issue because it's easy to find money for the Joe Smith's greenhouse, right? Somebody wants to donate money, that's great. If that greenhouse uses a lot of energy, it's just not very attractive to find funders for the gas that it takes to heat the greenhouse. So having an energy efficient building mm -hmm. that doesn't require you to spend a lot more on utilities is really great for schools. Schools often love vertical farming because they want to teach their kids they, in a small space. They can do a lot. So the design of that building can be different than it can be for a mid-scale, small to mid-scale commercial farm. Our greenhouses tend not to be multi-hectare greenhouses. They tend to be greenhouses for customers that live in more rural areas that want to mm -hmm. supply food to a city of a thousand, five thousand, maybe ten thousand people. You know, it, it, I don't know how much you know about this. Many of our farming communities are actually food deserts. They're farmers, mm. but they don't have food to eat. So they need to drive in eastern Colorado. It's a farming country. These people need to drive two hours to get to the next grocery store. They have to take coolers in their car so that they can put their things in the cooler so that they can get it home, that the ice cream gets home before it melts. And right. those people grow corn or soybeans or whatever, right? 
on large scale. They don't have their own food. We can help people grow food in these areas because in a greenhouse that works all year, you can do that. You can go into the urban areas, of course. So our greenhouses are not as big, but they allow people to grow on a smaller footprint very energy efficiently and when necessarily with almost no water usage. So even the water that you have to capture, you need to water your plants. Most of that water goes back out into the air through the leaves. We can capture that water and bring it back to the feeding of the plants, which allows in areas that are having water problems, right? Where the water table is very low, we can actually make things happen. You know, Australia comes to mind too, is not only in the US, but even there gave presentations. Extremely important to be sensible about water usage. And so, again, we are an engineering office. We can tailor the solutions to the problems that are out there. What's the largest implementation that you have of a greenhouse? I think currently we have the biggest one that we have built is 40,000 square feet, which is an acre. And we have a few projects in the pipeline that are probably in the order of two acres. So they're going close to a hectare. But that's kind of where we can do more. And then we go to other partners. Some of our technologies don't quite, this reflection of the North Wall, that principle works really well when you have a certain height of that building versus the depth of the building, right? So if the building is 20 foot high and the building is 30 foot wide, you get a lot of light in there. But if your building is 20 feet high and hundreds of feet wide, there's no effect. Then you're just like any other glass house, which is fine because if you want to create, and I think many people in your wonderful podcasts I listen to talk about feeding the world, right? On that scale, you have to have greenhouses that big and that's fine. And that is not our market currently, unless of course these greenhouses are on the island nations where it's very hot and very humid. In those places, certain crops cannot be grown in these structures unless there is a energy efficient cooling system and humidification system to bring the humidity levels and the temperatures down to a level that they can be grown at. And we have developed technology, which I think is the first in the world that can do this extremely energy efficiently. It's what we call the EcoLoop system. And I don't really want to have this be an advertising thing so I, anyway but that's it, it, it allows us to grow well you can if you yeah i mean feel free to go into as much detail as you want because i think the purpose of the show is also to educate people who don't understand the different types of challenges that people face in these different climates and you know it's the extremes of a place that's so cold they have to heat it to you know islands where it's so hot that you have to cool it and so as you know i think you should feel free to highlight some of the things you've been creating at series uh, to tackle some of these problems so some of those challenges island nations bahamas you know seychelles i mean you know people call to us and say hey we don't want covid here and we want to keep it out as far as possible can you, we want our own food supply. How do you do that on an island like the Seychelles, which is on, mostly on corals, right? You, and most of the, mm-hmm. the grow systems that use minerals, you also have to get rid of. You cannot get rid of these minerals on these islands. It's simply not possible that you cannot put a bunch of highly 
nutrient-rich effluent somewhere on the island. It's just not possible. So you have to find solutions mm -hmm. to make sure that these people can grow sustainably and not destroy their own environment. And they need to do it in an energy-efficient mm -hmm. way because they don't have big power plants. So those are applications where we actually do quite well, even with bigger greenhouses. On the other hand, we have quite a few lately, especially First Nations in Canada, but also in the U.S., Native American tribes, where they want to grow their own food because the ice is melting. You, do, you can't really get the same food that you've got regularly. And you cannot, you have to do this energy efficiently in these places so far off that in the winter, nobody can even fly there. And so having an energy efficient greenhouse is one way for them to grow the food that they need all year long. It's a great place for us because that's, we love those kind of challenges. You know, it's, it's challenging. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, it speaks to you being the inventor at heart, right? Seeing a problem and then figuring out like, what's the solution for this? How do and maybe even invent something that hasn't been done before. The nice thing is that it's not just me. It, I loved, we have an engineering, engine, internal engineering meeting yesterday about future ideas. You should have been there. It was crazy. It was, <laughs> the, the ideas were flowing. It's like, wow, yeah. if we had a few billion, we could, <laughs> we could do a lot of things really, really well. But, you know, it's like, you need to find the right balance, of course. Well, it reminds me of the Apollo 13 movie that Ron Howard created. And they were forced to solve a couple of problems. I don't remember the specifics. And then they had to recreate what the only yep. materials that they had on the shuttle at the time. So it's like, we have these, you know, we have this copper wiring, this this tape yep. and this thing, and we have to make the thing that they need. And it, so I imagine when you see a movie like that, you know, you, you start, you smile because you're like, that's where the wheels start turning about like, what can we build yep. with what we have at our, at our disposal? Yeah. And duct tape was involved. I remember that because <laughs> yeah. being a German, we okay. don't have duct tape. So when I came to US and I was on the first B team and everybody was duct taping their shoes because they had not enough money to pay for yeah. them you know, in college and all that. I was like, wow, that's strange. <laughs> I've never seen that. And then, you know, I said, America has held it back together with duct tape. And then he was on the Apollo. I said, of course it was there. Well, why yeah. would it not be? It's so universally yeah. helpful. It's See, it seems like the opposite of German engineering. It's <laughs> just duct tape. Yeah, no, 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 no. We try not to use duct tape in our greenhouses, but I'm sure the clients do after all. What's the... It's interesting, this idea of food desert, because in past conversations, it's typically been inner cities where, you know, and they're considered food deserts because they also don't have access to fresh food. But I think what's interesting here is a bit a different take on food desert. And the irony is that it's a farmer that's producing food, but it's just, a you know, one or two crops. And it's not enough. You know, it, it's obviously not not the full diversity of food that they would need. And it sounds like having the greenhouse helps to alleviate and solve some of those challenges. It's quintessential, right? And it feeds people's souls. Mm. I mean, I think that's the beautiful thing about growing. And I, I can't say that enough. And people say, hey, you know, they talk about their horrible days at work and this customer did this and that customer did that and they were mean and they were, you know, it's like you're talking with people that grow stuff. They are all nice. <laughs> I mean, in general, they're just yeah. nice. You know, and to just... They, and most people have some people that grow things generally have a certain amount of patience because it takes patience from the little tiny seedling to the full plant and production. And 
you know, tomatoes. Oh my God, you're like hundred days. I mean, that's, that's such a long time, right? It's people. It's a beautiful yeah. field. The people are. They have a mission, and it is so wonderful to, to think about again that sustainability part about most of our clients, but our employees, our suppliers, everybody is. It is just nice. It feeds your soul. You know, for everybody listening to this that is not in the food field, I can highly <laughs> recommend it. It's very different than the chemical yeah. field and and all of that. But it is, oh my God, this is such a wonderful, it just can be such a wonderful life to, to feel like you have a purpose and everything is aligned. That's really well put and very motivating and inspirational. Thank you for sharing that. I'm also just out of curiosity, you've talked about some of the larger implementations. Do you know offhand what the smallest greenhouse is that you've installed or supplied? The smallest one? Yeah. Yeah, that was my very first one in my neighbor's <laughs> yard. That's an eight by 10, eight foot by 10 foot. It's still okay. in operation and I built it partly with my kids that at the time were six and eight. And I have all the photos of that. It was very adorable. They loved it. And this GAT system we okay. installed and they actually put it into the ground. It was awesome. So that was the smallest. And then, as I said, 10 by 12. And I think these days in the commercial realm, at least they're usually 30 by, you know, something, 30 by 50, 30 by 100, 30 by 150. And then they get multiples of that. So our idea is to bring the cost down. We need to have multiples it needs to be somewhat of a repeatable mm -hmm. system modular and so th th this is all going to modularity to bring the prices down on the residential side of course it's not the part that makes the most amount of money right so you're talking about projects that are several million dollars versus the homeowner that wants a 1500 dollars drawing for his backyard or attach it a greenhouse to their house that's not really profitable in that sense in comparison but I own the company, it's my money, and we do not, if that department pays for itself and we're doing good mm. for the world, that's yeah. great. And if we make a little money, that's awesome. And we want to not ever get rid of that. It, we want to keep it so that people can afford small greenhouses, um, including, again, vertical farming, farming mm -hmm. towers, to use the small space as efficiently as possible to grow as much food as they can, you know, vertical farming systems are great. They work and you need to get the right nutrients and, and all of that, but it's people succeed with it. And that's what we really look forward to, right? They get fresh food at home and tasty mm. food. And that's really, the quality is different when you get it right from the yeah. plant on your plate. We want to do that as much as possible, of course. Are you seeing a growth in that sector? Because you have the DIY kits and you have the backyard kits. And I imagine... What happened and what, what I read a lot about in COVID is obviously lived in New York City, I lived in Los Angeles, and the news, you know, a couple of months into COVID was everybody was leaving the cities and just realized home prices were going up in the suburbs. And I'm wondering, as right. a result of that, you know, people are trying asking these questions of where their food comes from and, and figuring out a plan for having fresh food available. And, and I'm wondering what you saw and what you continue to see from that. You know, I don't keep track of all yeah. the numbers in the marketing yeah. department. That's Chris's part. But I know the, they're probably tripled the amount of increase in buildings that we built. So we had to hire more people. We had to outsource a bunch of those designs. People were interested in more buildings and better buildings. I was so... 
do not want to make fun of a very serious topic, right? COVID is a very serious yeah. topic. It, this, this is not a, but in my mission in life and serious mission of sustainability, COVID has helped us and really everybody to think more about where does my food come from? How do I stay healthy? Get the right nutrients, get the right amount of sleep, do the job the right way get people to grow more and live more sustainably has something has been a fundamental shift since the beginning of COVID yeah. that I observe. And about that, I am happy because it aligns with our, my life's mission. Is there an enormous amount of suffering for people that lose their job? Absolutely. And it is horrible. I see it. I have friends. It is devastating. And I don't, you know, on one hand, I say I'm happy. I'm happy about the shift. To more towards more sustainable because and i hope you know politically we move towards a more sustainable behavior because without that it's really hard it's going to be hard and we see the changes in the climate everywhere I, when we talk to those first nations in canada it's their way of life is collapsing and it's great that they want to grow vegetables is not something that they're really yet good at mm. so they need help to do this because they bright and wonderful people that have a lot of knowledge, but yeah. growing vegetables is in the greenhouse is not necessarily what they grew up with. Do you see a lot of interest from First Nations for this time? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a huge part of our business. Mm. Yeah, well, I think what's interesting, and it's how, you know, when you think about the history of this country and the, you know, the Native Americans who lived here and, and, and understood the land and cultivated the land and were in direct communication with nature on a daily basis and you know and then hundreds of years later and colonization all that went away and was gone and i think it, it seems like it's just there's something cyclical about it coming back now full circle and being able to help first nations you know reintroduce you know that connection back to you know growing your own food and self-sustainability it is huge not only for them it is it's a societal shift yeah it gives people purpose mm -hmm. To see things grow is an enormously satisfying feeling. It is enormously satisfying for people that are in the, the veterans. It's a lot of veterans, greenhouses now, the wounded veterans, mm. that it is healing to grow. Yeah. And anybody who has grown something, my whole house is full of plants that they go all the way into my bedroom, you know, it's like the with banana trees and all that <laughs> it it just feels good it there's no other way to say that yeah, yeah. it's satisfying it's to a more to a deeper level than the mind can ever tell you it's a fundamental body experience to grow it feeds the soul yeah it's yeah so as you think about the future of series where you're seeing or you're making inroads and where the innovation is happening what has you most excited as we enter, start to enter 2021? What comes to mind for you? You always ask these questions to everybody. And I was like, I need to have an answer <laughs> ready for this. And then I just like, oh, forget. What did I say? Um, <laughs> I love that uh, question. The things that are exciting is I hope this shift towards a more and more sustainable thinking will continue. And not just for us as a company from series standpoint, but as a whole, it, no one person can make this happen. This is a community. It's yeah. not about yourself. It yeah. is about everybody. It's about 
the employees, the customers, the suppliers, everybody needs to participate in that. The nonprofits that worked so tirelessly in these difficult times, spending their time on making absolutely wonderful contributions, the education of our kids. I feel really sad that really nothing agricultural is ever taught in high school. That's true. Or yeah. elementary school, really. It, there are great organizations, one of them called the Grow Foundation. There are many others that bring at least raised beds to school so that they can actually have kids grow and learn how to grow and what it feels like. That food is not something that you get from the shelf of a supermarket. Yeah. That, and so what am I excited about is if that fundamental shift towards food and where the food is coming from is a shift that I want to see. The next thing that I feel very strongly about is the quality of the food really matters. Mm -hmm. We don't talk and think about it. We just buy a tomato, we squeeze it a little bit and say, <laughs> okay, that's a good tomato, as if that would tell us anything about that tomato of whether or not we know it's organic, so it wasn't sprayed, yeah. maybe, but nutritious, healthy, about it. We, yeah. we know nothing. <laughs> yeah. So we need to learn how, we need to change this on a bigger scale. And, you know, a little bit of a story, and I hope I'm not over my time limit. No, here, no, no, but, go ahead. You know, I, I don't know. Do you know where the first organic farming idea ever came from? I don't. No, I'd love to learn. So the, it actually, as far as I know, it came from a guy in Germany called Rudolf Steiner. Okay. He was the founder of the Waldorf schools, or at least oh, Waldorf that's schools. Right. Are, yeah. You know. So he gave a talk in 1924, so that's almost 100 years ago, about a different way of farming. And one of his disciples was an uncle of mine, married into a Dr. Hans Müller. And Dr. Hans Müller was married to Marie Müller. And so she was the relative to me and we visited him often. Mm. He changed farming in Switzerland at the time and created the first biodynamic la label called Bioland. That was the first organic label that ever existed. And so he actually was a part of my family and we visited their farm often and they gave us tours and, you know, I'm talking about chemical engineering, but really that part of the family was always there. And we, I always remembered, you know, Hans Müller, he was not necessarily the most pleasant person. He was a politician for a long time. He was very strong-minded. His wife, Marie, was actually the, the Dr. Marie Miller. She did a lot of the work, the actual work to change farming practices. And then this, I feel, is a was the first call for a quality of the food. And this is in, happened in the 50s, so it is 70 years ago. This is not that new. Yeah. But do you see a label in the supermarket that says, oh, this has so much sodium, calcium, whatever on your tomatoes or your cucumbers? No, you don't, right? There are people out there that do a lot of work on this. So one of them is Dan Kittrich, who has do, done some work on trying to quantify the quality of the food. Mm. And he found huge differences between one carrot to the next carrot, yeah. a factor of one to a hundred in terms wow. of nutrient content. And he found that organic or non-organic did not make any difference. It is farmer to farmer that's different, right? And so the beauty of this movement that's coming, and I'm really excited about that, is for people to come and say, I want better quality food, and I want to know what that food is that I'm eating. And 
there are a lot of moms and dads out there that want to feed their kids healthy food and want to have them taste the vegetables. I just learned last week that a tomato that is stored under 50 degrees, meaning in your fridge, wherever in the transport, loses half of the nutrient value within a week, wow. less than a week. So when you think the transport of the tomato getting to you and then you put it in the fridge, it goes down enormously just by storing it the wrong way. Who knows about this? I didn't. Right? This is the kind of things where you need to think about, oh, wait a minute. That's why my tomato out of the garden tastes so much better. Yeah. Right? It is amazing. And I said right now, it's a week. I think it's what I just heard. It was a PhD scientist from one of the biggest tomato growing operations in the world. I think he said in a day, 50 degrees in one day diminishes the nutrient content by 50%. That I just was mind blowing. And so those changes are there and we want to see more of it, right? And we look for partnerships with people that share this vision and say, hey, what can we do better? We have so many ideas. It's fun. It's a playground. That's fascinating. And I think I always appreciate the ability and the opportunity to educate our listener because that's the purpose. That's the reason why I started the podcast. I was trying to educate myself and then have these types of conversations so I could learn who's doing what in this industry. And I'm just grateful that we had the chance to have this conversation because I learned a little bit more and it's probably a lot more that I don't know. But I think what this conversation does do is it stimulates people's curiosity. And I think, you know, definitely going to encourage people to visit the website. And so we'll make sure we have all those links available. Is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't? I had so much fun. I'm full of <laughs> adrenaline. I, I can't even <laughs> think about that right now. I just, it, yeah. Harry, I love your questions. It is so much, you're so thoughtful. I just love to, I think we covered it. I'm sure we could have another hour yeah. conversation and we would yeah. have another other topics to come up with, but that, I think we're good for here. Let me see, maybe one or two more. Do you remember your first invention? Oh, no. Well, I remember the one that I had a few patents before that one, but one that I could get a patent for, which I thought was really, really cool. And so I want to talk about that maybe. And that was at Gore. And we developed basically what's a fluidized bed reactor, which is basically a very efficient reaction system. So to make sure that all the pollutants from power plants are are filtered out, right? And it was mm. what's called a fluidized bed reactor that's normally huge, big reactors costing millions. And we compressed it in a little film that's only about a quarter of an inch thick with thousands and thousands of reaction spots. It was really, really cool, and especially seeing it under electron microscope. It was so thrilling to see that and see how powerful it was. And so... It wasn't the first, but it, it's one that I really, I didn't think that something that cool was possible. And we tried it and worked on it and it just turned out great. What I find fascinating about that is it feels like almost like you're tapping into a bit of a, a lineage because people think about, you know, Edison and, and Tesla and some of these the famous inventors. And there must be a special feeling when you created something that you realize is being birthed for the first time ever. <laughs> that must be a nice feeling. I did this with my daughter who she's on a patent. She's when she was 14 and they always did summer projects for me. And so that was always there. And that was just normal. That's, that's our summer activity. You do a project for Papa because 
<laughs> I had so many, we had so many ideas that so need to be done and they're cheap labor. And so she had some ideas about some fireproof way of doing things and just like, well, let's write a patent about this. And that made me the proudest of all of it, right? So it's like when your kid comes up and says, Papa, why don't we do it that way? And then we looked and didn't find anything else. And I was like, that's a really original idea. That's really <laughs> cool. Well, let's, you know. So that's the one I'm most proud of, even though, you know, not yet a commercial okay. project. <laughs> yeah, pretty soon though. Well, it, it sounds like it's in the genes <laughs> in the family. So I'm sure there'll, there'll be more coming in. And I think at that age, the beauty of it is that there's no wrong answer and their, their minds are really, really fertile. And so they're always thinking of out of the box, out of the box things that adults would normally laugh at. And you realize that they're tapping into a, a different type of energy source there. So wise. That happens all the time. They inspire me and it's like, Papa, why are you doing yeah. this way? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I may just think about this. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's actually not quite good. And it's like, okay, we learned something. Well, we definitely learned a lot on this conversation, Mark. So thanks again for the opportunity to share your story. It's Series GS, Series Greenhouse Solutions, and we'll have the links to the website and all the links you mentioned in the show notes. And I appreciate you being a sponsor of the, the podcast, Series being a sponsor, and uh, for you coming on and telling your story is very inspirational. Harry, it was absolute pleasure. Thank you for that. And, you know, I think on the website is my telephone number of people want to call me or reach out to me by email or whatever. Okay. I love talking to people. It's, you know, the extrovert. The world yeah. <laughs> is there. It's, it's all good. You may have people taking you up on that. So thanks again. Thank you, Harry. What a pleasure. Thanks again to Mark for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes, including a summary, timestamps, quotes from the episode, and links mentioned available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series is creating sustainable growing environments by combining smart design, innovative technology, and dynamic partnerships. Learn more at seriesgs.com. That's C-E-R-E-S-G-S.com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Tune in next week for my conversation with Ed Harwood, CSO of Aeroforms. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Until we meet again next week, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.